We're going to read the scriptures. I'm reading from Habakkuk chapter 3, and I'm reading from verse 1 right through to verse 13. Let's hear the word of God. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. If you could get your Bible and follow with us, that will be much appreciated. The words will also come up on the screen, uh, and it'll be easy for you to not only hear, but for to see as well. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou did ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes. Even thy word, Selah, thou did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice, and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou did march through the land in indignation. Thou did thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 13, and we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing these words of Holy Scripture today. Now this morning, as we continue with our series of expository sermons in the book of Habakkuk, we're turning our attention to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 right through to verse 13. And my theme today is entitled, Believing Principles of Real Revival. Now, this is my third message on the subject of real, true revival. I've already preached the first message, becoming passionate about real revival. Habakkuk, the prophet in 600 BC, was passionate about revival. I've also preached a second sermon, a follow-on sermon, being prayerful for real revival. And Habakkuk was not only passionate about real revival, but he was prayerful for real revival. 
It says in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeonoth. And now we're turning our attention and thinking of the subject of what does real revival look like? What are its main outstanding features? What are the marks of real revival? What are the characteristics we should be looking for? Now, I believe this is a very, very important aspect of this subject. I believe that we should ponder and consider this aspect at this time. Suppose if our sovereign God chose again to pour forth of his Holy Spirit and send a mighty revival of true Bible-believing religion to Northern Ireland, as he did three times in the past, how would we know that it's a real, true, genuine move of the Holy Spirit of God? You see, in these days when we're not experiencing revival, in these days of a spiritual dryness and a spiritual barrenness for the cause of Christ, it is very, very easy for the church or the Christian community to turn to a counterfeit revival to find an alternative to the real thing and call that alternative revival. Now, this is especially true when things are hard and tough for God's people. It's easy to manufacture something of ourselves, to turn from the old paths, to turn from the old truths into something new and something novel, something that's a substitute for the real thing, But it's not the real thing. Something that's not of God. Something that's man-made. Something that's off the flesh. Something that has the devil at the back of it. Let, Let me say, for example, some years ago in the Christian community, the in thing for the professing church was the so called Toronto Blessing. Now, the Toronto blessing was called the genuine work of God. A move of the Holy Spirit had got international attention. And the people were talking about it. But I want to tell you, I believe that it can be verified, looking back now, and even at the time, that the Toronto blessing was not a genuine work of the Holy Ghost. If I was to ask this morning, how do we measure the success of the church? How do you recognize a successful church? Some people immediately think of outward appearances. A big ministry that attacks, attracts thousands of people. A big ministry that brings in millions of pounds annually into the church coffers. A a ministry that has a whole team of people behind it. So the focus is on getting numbers through the door. The focus is on finance. The the focus is on entertainment and and music and and, and, and a showbiz mindset where strange things happen, where, where people laugh uncontrollably. Where, where people bark like a dog, where, where people roll in the floor. And you see, that went on at the Toronto Blessing. But it was all to do with big personalities. At its heart, it was really a man-made movement. 
And people argue from outward appearance, but it must be of God. I want to tell you that it is suspect. I want to tell you it is not real, true, genuine, biblical revival. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It is another spirit that's energizing it. It's a form of godlessness. It has nothing to do with the real, true power of God. Now remember, I've already taught you that revival, or true revival, is a sovereign work of God. There is no human effort that can summons the Holy Spirit of God to work here or to work there. Man-made efforts cannot produce true revival. Only the living, sovereign, true God can send forth a genuine revival. I have told you what revival is. It's the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating a soul, being magnified, manifested, and realized in a far greater and a far deeper degree. Now let me ask a very important question this morning. What are the main believing principles of every true, genuine revival? Principles that can be founded on the Word of God. Principles that can be verified that were manifested in times of revival in our day and generation. It's important that you know this. Why? Well, prevent you being deceived. Prevent the true church being deceived. We need a a spirit of discernment. Here's another reason to assist you in prayer. As you become passionate for revival, as you supplicate the throne of God for revival, then you will know what to look for as you pray. And of course, it will also help you to identify a true revival when it comes. So you can rejoice then in a genuine work of God. Now here's Habakkuk. And he's sighing for revival. And we have felt that sigh. Oh, Lord. And we have heard him supplicate the throne of God for revival. And after praying for revival, he begins then to praise the living and the true God who who brings revival. You see Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 right through to uh, verse um, 17 is indeed a song of praise. You've got to think of the different silas here. The pauses. Habakkuk is taken up with the power and majesty of the Lord. He's given honor to the Lord. Who God is. What God is like. He's declaring God's works. He's reminding himself of what God has done in the past. He's thinking of what God is doing at the present time. He places himself, he places all men in their proper prospectus in relation to the Almighty. Habakkuk, of course, has got great confidence in the Lord. He's calling to mind God's former deliverances, his acts. He's considering the days of old, what God did in Egypt, what God did or is going to do in Babylon, and how the Lord brought about deliverance. Listen to what he says in Habakkuk chapter 3 
and verse 3. God came from Timah, and the Holy One from Mount Parah, Selah. In other words, think about that. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Come down to verse 13. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. Now let's think of these believing principles of real, true, genuine revival. And there's seven of them. Here's the first one. The exaltation of the Savior. Think of these words. God came from Timah and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Link it up with the words. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is known in the Bible as God's anointed. He's known as the, in the Bible as the Holy One. You see, Habakkuk knew something of the true and essential deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a day when there is a denial of Jesus Christ, who he is. Certainly a denial that he was God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. There's also a denial of what the apostle John said of Christ in John chapter 1 and verse 1. Remember it is written, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There you've got Jesus Christ as one who is co-eternal with God the Father. He predates the beginning. He's co-equal. You've got another person here. You've got personalities in the Godhead. You've got a reference to his deity. And the word was God. You see, many today doc mock the doctrine of the incarnation, mock the doctrine of the virgin birth, the sinless life, the true humanity, of Jesus Christ. Men twist the scriptures. Men twist his teaching and seek to turn men and women away from the Lord Jesus, away from the scriptures of truth to themselves. These false prophets, energized by a false prophet, expound a false gospel. And one of the signs that they manifest is that they have no love for or loyalty toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not of God. Listen to what the uh, uh, Apostle John says in 1 John uh, chapter 4 and in the verse 2. He says this, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Men in John's day were denying that Jesus Christ come in the flesh, denying his eternal sonship, denying his incarnation, his virgin birth, his um, sinless life, his atoning death, his, uh, his resurrection, his life of intercession, his bodily return. And I want you to notice this morning where and when the Holy Spirit works. One of the signs that he has works 
is the exaltation of the personal work of Jesus Christ. See, true revival, genuine revival, always results in the exaltation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There will also be an open confession of Jesus Christ in accord with the scriptures, to the law, to the testimony, Isaiah says, in Isaiah 8 and 20. There is no light in there if they speak not according to this word. See, one of the fruits and manifestations and features of true revival is that Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. He is openly confessed. He is praised. He is adored. He is loved. He is well spoken of. People not only speak rightly of him, but people run after him. Now, that's one of the important principles that you must believe in any true revival. One of the definite Distinct features of the Spirit of God at work and true revival is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, can I prove that from the Scriptures? In John 14, verse 26, we read these words. But the Comforter, that's another name for the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said Unto you. And in John 15, verse 26, we read, But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And in John 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send them unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Notice the words there in John 15 verse 26. He will testify of me. You see, that is the Holy Spirit's particular exclusive work. The Holy Spirit, when he is present, will always magnify Christ. Was not true of the day of Pentecost after the 10-day prayer meeting? And the Holy Spirit was poured out at what happened? Um, what did they do? How did they respond? Did they promote self? Did, did they gather a huge multitude together and, and start uh, taking money off them and, and building a building? Uh, no, no. They didn't urge people to follow them as the apostles. No, they exalted Christ. Peter's sermon was totally Christ-centered. Who he is and what he is like and what he has done from first to last. It was all about Christ. And you examine the histories of revival. I have a book in the library uh, entitled The Log College by Archibald Alexander, a classic account of the times of revival in America in 1741 and 42. I have another book in the study there, Revival and Revivalism, by Ian Murray. I have books called The Year of Grace, 1859, in Northern Ireland. I have records of what happened in the 1950s in the Isle of Lewis with the late Duncan Campbell. And I've discovered upon reading this material that a sovereign work of God always leads to the exaltation of the personal work of Christ. That's what happened in true revival. 
It's not man-centered. True revival is and always Christ-centered. It's not to advance a church. It's not to advance a denomination. It's not to promote a particular man. It's not to promote a movement. It's not to puff up a people. Look at us. And, and, and we're unique. We're, we're different. You, you, you should join us. No. Jesus Christ is always seen. He is always set forth in the fullness of his person and work. If the Spirit of God is at work, people want to honor Christ. There will be a hunger after him. There will be a homing in on him. There'll be a hearing of him. There'll be a hurling forth of him. Christ will be highly esteemed. He will be loved. He will be adored. He will be feared. Christ is given the preeminence. And I want to say this morning, any proposed movement, any claim of revival, in any age that doesn't exalt the Holy One, that doesn't set forth Jesus Christ as God's anointed prophet, priest, and king, I want to say it clearly, and I want you to listen to me, it's not of God. Because true revival always and only exalts the Savior. It testifies of him. It talks of him. That's the test. You see, I've entitled it The Believing Principles of True Revival. And here's the first one. The exaltation of the Savior. The Spirit of Truth. Hereby we know the Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of Error. Hereby we know the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Antichrist. Because the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Christ always exalts Christ. So that we hear him. So that we honor him. So, so that we, we, we hunger after him. The second believing principle of true revival is this. The exposure of the sinner. When the Holy Spirit is at work, he shows people their sins. He shows people the wrath of God promised against them. There's a deep conviction of sin experienced in the human heart. We've already read from John chapter 16 and in the verse 8. And it says, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. In the book, The Year of Grace, dealing with the 1859 revival, down in the town of Coleraine, where I lived for some years, there's a school there. I'm trying to remember the name of the school. It's one of the oldest schools in Coleraine. The children, one by one, asked the teacher to be excused. And when the teacher looked out the window, there was a line of children behind the school wall, and they were praying. And the people that were passing by in the street could hear the children praying. And this is what they were saying. Oh, my sin. Oh, my sin. In the 1940s, in the first great awakening in America, a man by the name of John Tennant, who was the minister of Freehold Church in New Jersey, he had a severe 
conviction of sin that lasted several days and several nights. And he cried out in soul agony. And this is what he said, and I quote, O my bloody lost soul, what shall I do? Have mercy in me, O God, for Christ's sake. You see, here's another believing principle. True revival always exposes sin. It always exposes the evil and the wickedness of this present world in which we live. It exposes the spirit of antichrist. It exposes the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. Here's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. There's a greater hatred for sin. There's an understanding of what sin is, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. There's a, a desire to turn from sin into repentance to God. There's a desire for God's salvation. There's a deep conviction to oppose the spirit of Antichrist in the world. See, here's evidence that the Holy Spirit truly is at work. You won't love the world or the things of the world. 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16. You'll love the Word. And you'll love the things of the Word. And the Word, of course, is Jesus Christ. Did you know that in 1859 in Northern Ireland, many pubs were closed? Nothing to do with COVID-19 in that day. It was due to a lack of trade. People had no desire to go to the public house and get drunk. The courts were in recess because they had no new cases to try. Police stations were empty because the officers had nothing to do. Did you know that in revival in the Isle of Lewis, there was quite a number of people gathered at the police station why? Because there was a believing officer there and they were there due to conviction of sin asking him to tell them and teach them about God's salvation. Did you know that there's places in Northern Ireland that had their names changed after the time of revival? I think of Grace Hill in Ballymena. Why did this happen? Because the Holy Spirit of God was at work. And the Holy Spirit always produces a hatred for sin. The Holy Spirit always honors the Savior. There's a deep and great awe for God. Congregations were changed. Communities were affected. Countryside was transformed. Why? Because the Spirit of God was at work. You think of our present day. Think of many who profess the name of Christ. And they have this mindset where we have liberty to live and to do as we please. See, it's mostly all about self. There's little thought of or preaching about sin, about repentance. We live in a day when sin is redefined. Someone has said the church that stands for nothing falls for everything. And this is not what is happening in the professing church they, they, they're falling now for, for transgender rights. And they're standing up for homosexuality. And they're, they're pushing for the redefinement, or have already done so, of marriage so that same-sex marriage would be acceptable. You think of those professing Christians that, that push for abortion. 
Thou shalt not kill, contrary to the law of God. And they have liberal views in many, many areas. You see, there's a serious imbalance. But there's no exposure of sin. Sin's treated lightly. Sin's treated in a frivolous manner. Sin is treated as if it, it doesn't matter. And there's no real holiness. And there's no real penance. But when true revival comes, holiness becomes important again. There's a real deep repudiation of sin. The church becomes concerned about sanctification and about worldliness. No longer is sin treated lightly. No longer is it treated in a frivolous manner. No longer do they say it it doesn't matter. You see, true revival always exposes sin. True revival leads to a holy lifestyle. People that are professing Christ that live together Well, you know what they did in the days of revival? They did the right thing. They got married. Why? Because the Spirit of God was at work in the heart. And when the Spirit of God is at work, sin's put away. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. And I want to say, here's a believing principle this morning that needs to be understood. Any claim that the Holy Spirit is at work, In any genuine revival that doesn't expose sin and doesn't promote a holiness of life, I want to say this morning, it's not of God. It's not of God. Let me give you a third believing principle. There'll be the exposition of the Scriptures. Over there in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, and in the verse 21 to verse 23, The Apostle Paul said this, Listen to the word of God. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, one of the marks, the outstanding features of a true revival is that linked into the exaltation of the Savior and the exposure of sin is the exposition of the Scriptures. There's the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Now, the preaching of the word will not guarantee a true revival, but true revival is generally the blessing of the Spirit of God on the foolishness of preaching of Christ. And where that does not happen, where the word is missing, there's no true revival. You see, we have in our day an attempt to minimalize the subject of the exposition of the scriptures. Clowns are brought in. Drama takes place. Some churches have even converted to using strip joint clubs. 
That wasn't what the church was designed for. Let me explain. In 1740, a man by the name of Gilbert Tennant was in Boston. And he faithfully preached the word of God there for three months. He preached on the dreadful holiness of God, the justice of God, the laws of God, the wrath of God, the true power and majesty of God, God's anger at man's rebellion and, and impenitence. And there was an intense appetite to hear the word of God. And as the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Sinners were warned that in their impenitent state there were an awful danger and hundreds were converted. The move of God was so great that many in the congregation, even after the preaching had end, refused to leave. Others that did leave then came back again. There was those that gathered outside, do you know, here in Carry Duff FPC, down the road at the bottom, Killing Your Road and Church Road, there's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in 1859, there was hundreds, I'm told at least 501 night, gathered in the cobbles to hear the minister of that church, the Reverend uh, Hugh Hannah, preach the word of God. And, and great conviction came upon many, and many were converted. And you see, there's a hunger and thirst for the word of God. And what was true in 1859 is true of every true revival. At the heart of the revival is an exposition of the scriptures. People are coming and asking, is there any word from God? Is there any help for us? Is there any hope for us? And, 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 and the preacher is set on fire by the Spirit of God. And the people, they pray that God will come and speak. And they will adopt the mindset of the psalmist, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. And there's a, a delight in the word. And there's a desire for the word. And there's a drinking in of the word. Didn't that happen in biblical history, King Josiah? The book of the law was found. The book of the law was read. It had been neglected for a long time. Now fresh attention is given to the book. And the people have an ear to hear and a people that desire to understand the scriptures. You see, that's one of the believing principles of true revival. There's an exposition of the scriptures. The word is preached. And the preacher will say, as I've quoted from Isaiah 8 and 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. Let me give you a fourth principle. The encouragement of the saints. The people of God, I believe, will have a real genuine love for each other. They'll have a, a deep regard for each other in Christ. There'll be a unity. There'll be a harmony. Galatians 5 and 22 tells us that love is one of the component elements of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we're born of the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit, then uh, love for God and love for one another, as well as the Scriptures and the Savior, will be uh, uh, produced within our hearts by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit within us, out of genuine love, will deal with a party spirit, deal with bitterness, deal with old rivalries, deal with disunity, deal with greed, envy, jealousy, and pride. Remember what the psalmist said. In Psalm 133, he says, Behold, and how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the Jew of Hermon, as the Jew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Sinful differences are put away by the Spirit of God. It's not a false unity of the ecumenical movement or the charismatic movement. It's a true unity. It's a unity of the saints in union with Jesus Christ, where we have a deeper and a stronger love for each other, a a deeper and a strong desire for the good and the well-being of each other. And I want to help my brother. I want to help my sister in Christ. I won't harm him. I I, I won't seek to hinder him. I I hate this attitude. I, I don't get mad. I just get even. But a Christian with the Spirit of God and love in his heart will not want to get even. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. You'll not drag your brother or sister to court. You'll tell them their sin. You'll ask them to repent. And if they do, you will forgive them. That's according to the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Read these Scriptures and understand When there's a a true, genuine revival, there's the encouragement of the saints. Let me tell you something else. There's also the evangelization of lost souls. Isn't that what happened in the day of Pentecost? 3,000 were converted. Paul's, Peter's preaching. 5,000 were later converted. What happened in 1740s? In the first great awakening in America? In 1858, 1859, in America, here in Northern Ireland, over 100,000 souls were converted in the 1859 awakening. What happened in 1904 in Wales with Evan Roberts? What happened in the 1920s under the late W.P. Nicholson? In the 1950s in the Isle of Lewis? I already told you about at least 50 people coming to the police station and got converted there. Thousands upon thousands come to Christ. And those that are born of the spirit of a burden to reach the lost. And they have a vision and a passion for lost souls. Remember Proverbs 29, 18, where there's no vision, the people perish. And oh, our souls perishing today. Because we, we seem to have lost the burden that men ought to come to Christ. You think of the danger of a lost soul, the danger of the wrath of God, the danger of hell for all eternity. You see, we live in a day when the opposite is true, where there's the emphasis on the outward, the health and wealth movement, the the healing movement, where people are paid literally to walk down an aisle and say that they're healed from their blindness and throw away their crutches and it's justified as a seed of faith. These are paid actors in, in large congregations. That's not of God. It's not of the Spirit of God. Where the Spirit of God is at work, here's the fifth principle. There's the evangelization of lost souls. There's a burden to see men and women come to Christ. First and foremost, paramount. Can I say sixthly? There's the exhortation of a deeper spirituality. True revival involves the work of the Holy Spirit that brings forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Where, where a soul begins to live in light of eternity, where there's a deep love for God, there's a deep hunger for God and for the glory of God. That's exactly what Habakkuk had. Isn't that what Habakkuk said? 
God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his part. It's all about what he was doing. And, and, and Habakkuk was taken up with that. And the Spirit of God will bring a deeper appreciation of the work of God to our hearts. The worship of God. The, the witness of God. That there will be a real deep fear of God. And in those days, even when there was strange bodily agitations. And there was some in the days of revival. Due to the emotionalism of the period. One man by the name of Reverend David Rice in Kentucky had a unique way of dealing with that in his church. He said this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he wanted people to focus on that. Now, not being prostrate on the floor, not standing crying profusely, but focusing on the Lord. There's an exhortation to a deeper spirituality if we're born of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And also there's the emphasis of God's sovereignty. This is the seventh principle. True revival is always and only of God. It's not man-centered. It's nothing to do with a personality. It's to do with God himself. God is sovereign in time. God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over congregations. God is sovereign in events. God is sovereign in the country. Oh, that we could catch sight of that. I commend to you this morning as you've listened to me these seven believing principles that are at the heart. These are the real true features, the real characteristics of true revival, real genuine revival. And oh, that the Lord will help us to move beyond the passion for revival and move beyond the prayer for revival to get these principles into our head. So that when the Spirit of God does work in Northern Ireland, we will know that this is a real, true, genuine move of God. And if any comes and says, there's a move of God here, or a move of God there, we can apply these seven tests. And we can ask ourselves, are they evident? And if they're evident, we can say a hearty amen. We can join in that desire and promotion of that true revival. But if it's not, if the tests don't apply and can't be fitted in, then we can say honestly, it's not of God. Join with me for being passionate and prayerful. But let's believe the principles of true revival. God bless you today. And thanks for listening. And could I just ask you to do something else for me? I want you to encourage others to listen to these series of messages because of anything we need in Northern Ireland. It's a genuine, true revival. Lord, send it to us in mercy. In Jesus' name.